Welcome to the 90s Kid Book Club Podcast, where we indulge in nostalgia, dust off our favorite books from growing up, and discuss how they shaped a generation. Hey, we're your hosts. I'm Monica. And I'm Amy. And we are not scholars, authors, historians. We're just two 90s kids who love talking about it with each other and now with you. So welcome to 90s Kid Book Club. So this week we're talking about Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. This book was published by Judy Bloom in the year 1970. Um, She's written a total of 29 books, both children's books, young adult, and adult fiction. Um, Out of all of her books, they've sold more than 90 million copies and have been published in over 39 languages. So pretty prolific author. Uh, When we're talking about Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. She wrote this book in just six weeks and was quoted in saying it was my third published book, but the first real book. The book where I just let go. I didn't know what I was doing. I just did it. And this is what came out, Bloom said in a 2020 interview with CBC. So she's also uh, been quoted in saying that this book changed her life. So it contains some pretty large themes about uh, menstruation and coming of age themes for women. Um, we think they're pretty cringe topics, but they're things that we all go through. And she approached them with the reverence and sincerity that they deserve and was really one of the only authors at this time talking about things like growing breasts and liking boys and getting your period. Yeah. So she has many honors. Um, in 1970, the year that this was published, the New York Times selected her book as the Outstanding Book of the Year. In 2010, Time Magazine included Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, in the all-time 100 novels written in English since 1923. Scholastic selected the novel for its 100 greatest books for kids and 100 must-read books. And Judy, in 2023, Judy Bloom was named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People of the Year. The reason she's in kind of the zeitgeist right now and was named an influential person of the year is because this uh, book has now been adapted into a movie. So uh, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret is a now film. um, But also came out this year. And it came out this year. Mm -hmm. But also there is another movie that's a documentary about Judy Bloom. So that one, I think, was released on Amazon, if I am saying that correctly. Yeah, Amazon Prime Video. It's called Judy Bloom Forever, and it premiered in April 2023. So um, her writing in this book in particular is so pervasive that it's referenced in all kinds of pop culture. So things that I didn't even know. Um, It's referenced in an episode of Ted Lasso, in The Simpsons, um, South Park, the show Lost. The comedian Chelsea Handler published a book, Are You There, Vodka? It's Me, Chelsea, in 2008. (laughs) So this Are You There, whatever kind of um, titling has been reused by lots of other forms of media. 
Um, she, uh, Judy Bloom, had some success in Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret when it first came out. And so that um, kind of launched her into writing Then Again, Maybe I Won't, which is a novel focused on very similar themes, but from a boy's perspective. Um, so the narrator of that book is Tony Miglioni, and he's an 11-year-old boy who's also dealing with puberty. So kind of seeing things on the other side, we're here, we're dealing with an 11-year-old girl. So um, this book in particular is in the American Library Association's list of 100 most frequently challenged books of the 1990s. And in the 90s, it was ranked at number 60. So I think that's why it was still kind of in the rounds and, and kind of making its rounds even when we were kids in the 90s is because it was still challenged for some of the themes and the ways in which Judy Bloom talks so openly about them. Um, the novel ranked 99 on the list of 100 most frequently challenged books in the 2000s. So it was knocking down further and further on the list. It wasn't the most or getting even more controversial. So I feel like if anything, that's kind of hope for the future, maybe, that these topics are becoming less controversial over time. It's large, largely directed at girls and women, and the characters speak very candidly and behaviorally proactively about their own sexual development and health, which is really what kind of sparked some of the concern at, at the time that it was published. Um, Judy Bloom's fiction in particular was banned on the heels of the election of President Ronald Reagan. So he kind of marked this era of censorship and book banning that impacted Bloom as well. And she was um, known at the time and even now to work really diligently with the National Coalition Against Censorship to support teachers and librarians who want to fight to keep these challenged books on the shelves. I know even in our area right now, Amy, there's a teacher, I think in Cobb County, who's getting fired for reading a banned book in class. And it, I believe, was about a trans kid. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like the new banned books. It was a children's book, wasn't it? I want to say it was like, it was a children's book. My Shadow is Purple. I think it's called My Shadow is Purple. Yeah, I believe you're, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the new banned books is about um, gender and gender identity. We can't be banning art is kind of where I've always stood on the banning of books. There's art that makes you makes people think one way and think another way, and think it's all about perspective. It's kind of like we've talked about in a previous podcast episode. Um, art pulls out whatever is inside you. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, right. Banning and what books was controversial? What's controversial at one point may not be controversial in the future. I mean, this book, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, has been on a banned book list for decades. And you and I read it and think, well, there's nothing scandalous in here. So the the Purple Shadow or My Shadow is Purple or whatever that book was. um, I also highly doubt there's scandalous things about it from my perspective. (laughs) Yeah, it may not even be, you know, someone may not bat an eye in the future. 
Um, yeah. So the only other thing I have to say about Judy Bloom, I always have more appreciation for these authors after I do some research on them. Um, she opened an independent bookstore called Books and Books, oh. and it is in Key West, and it's a local nonprofit independent bookstore. It, she calls it a community center for readers, and she works there seven days a week. Or no, several, sorry. Oh. Oh. Several oh. days a week, not seven. No. <laughs> she lives there. <laughs> Possibly, but um, specifically her website says several. Um, and her website is like very retro 90s. Like I had to check the date stamp at the bottom of like, when was this last updated? Because it has total 90s vibes. And I was like, man, she either has not updated this in forever or she's into 90s vibes. And it was last time stamped date stamped in 2022 so i think she's just into that 90s look that is awesome <laughs> I know. And i'm sure we can take some pointers <laughs> yeah so um let's go ahead and dive right into the book and then for those of you who have joined the patreon we'll talk a little bit about the movie as well well let's dive right in so this week we read are you there god it's me margaret by judy bloom this was a super uh, popular book back in the day during my childhood. I feel like right at about the time as the main character. Um, to give a little summary of the book, it's about an 11-year-old girl named Margaret who has a father who is Jewish and a mother who is Christian. She's not being raised in either uh, religious denomination, but she um, is struggling to find her relationship with God and is going through very typical 11-year-old things. Yeah. Being 11 is hard no matter what. So throwing in an identity crisis and religion and a new school is like too much. I, I, I see why it was a lot for her. Um, yeah, being 11 is just hard no matter what. But she gets home from camp one day and from summer camp and her parents are like, okay, we're moving out of the city. They lived in New York and are moving to the Burbs. So they moved to New Jersey. So big change kind of culturally as well to, to tackle at the same time. A lot of this book though is around, uh, themes of get like, puberty and just growing and um, getting your period, growing your chest. I felt like there were so many cringe moments of your upbringing in one book. Like it's like everything awkward about about puberty and your growth and all in one book. Yeah. And I have a really hard time with that kind of content anyways. Like I purposely – like what's that show – Loudmouth is that what it's called? Hmm. Oh, that's gonna kill me that I can't think of it. Big Mouth. Okay, I've never seen it. Okay, I've never seen it. <laughs> so I have a hard time with like awkward cringe content at all. Like I just don't want to put myself back in that place voluntarily. So there's this show, Big Mouth, where these teens. Like puberty is represented by little monsters that kind of follow them around. I can't even watch it. People love it. 
they talk about it all the time. I can't even partake because I just hate putting myself back in that like cringe space. So this one was a little difficult for me. Also, the topics of getting your period and your boobs growing and liking boys seems so trivial to me right now with what's happening in my life. Um, but it the book does kind of put you right in her headspace. And I can remember being that age and that being a big important thing. Something my mom did, though, that I really commend her for is that she she talked about bodies. She talked about gender. She talked about your period. She taught, she, nothing was off limits. So when I came to that point, nothing was scary. Nothing was like, obviously it's uncomfortable because you're 11 and everything's uncomfortable or 12 or whatever age. Um, but yeah, like I had a book when I was really young about like, this is your body. And it was like an anatomy kind of book for kids about this is what boys look like. This is what boys, girls look like. And it just never was as repressed for me and like yeah. uncomfortable to have those conversations. I'm also very close with my mom. But um, yeah, this book was published by Judy Bloom in 1970. But the themes you can see if it's published in 1970, the themes are carried over from the 60s. And so it's an even kind of outdated story. Even by the time it was published, the 70s had this big revolution, sexual revolution. And um, so these things may have been talked about in a little bit more ex explicit uh, in the 70s than even the 60s. But um, yeah, just a very different experience for me than the girls in this book. I felt like there were a few things relatable about this book for me. Uh, one, she went to camp in New Hampshire. I definitely went to camp in New Hampshire. I, uh, originally was raised up in New England. So I was going to school in New Hampshire, but also going to camp. Um, another thing that I definitely related to was the, I was definitely ready for my period. I definitely knew that was going to happen. I knew I was a woman all of that. My mom had definitely prepared me for that. And we also had classes. I want to say I was in like fourth or fifth grade and we had a sex ed class and we yeah. went over, you know, if you have your period and whatever. Yeah. Um, very basic education level, but I feel like that was something we did really early on. Um, so, you know, when I first had my period, I was pretty much prepared now, the one thing I could relate to was that I was at summer camp when mine happened. So I didn't oh, have a mom. No. I didn't have anybody I could rely on. I didn't have anybody oh. I could call in. I called in my best friend who had already had hers as well, yeah. but had had hers like maybe two months prior. So she mm -hmm. barely knew what she was doing either. But it was right. at summer camp. So of course you're oh, swimming bummer. too. Yeah. Oh, bummer. It was, it was yeah. just – and of course it's I was too embarrassed. I was too yeah. embarrassed to even like – say anything to my camp counselor. Right. So I'm going swimming and just like oh. hoping for the best. Like, Oh my gosh. And that was awful. That was mortifying. There were a lot of, um, just because we share cringe moments on our podcast, yeah. there yeah. were so many memories that I had that I, that were cringe moments. And I was like, I am not sharing that. I am not <laughs> going to talk about that. I am not going to, um, but it was funny. It was funny to see. I felt like it was, it was relatable. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I was reading this book and I think I was about 11 when I read this book. Um, and it was about the time that I got baptized. I didn't get Ooh. baptized till I was 10. 
Um, I was a military family, so we moved all over the place and it just wasn't, it was never a priority until I was 10. So I had read this book, was keeping a journal. I actually still have the journal behind me. Um, and it is a Christian journal. Like uh-huh. it, it, like it has the, the daily prayer, the Lord's daily prayer on the cover of it. Um, and that's what wow. I kept as my diary. So that is a really interesting time to read this because I didn't read it when I was a kid. I read it. And I think that's why my perspective is so different is I did read it for the first time recently for the podcast. So I know that it's a crucial book for many girls growing up and likely boys growing up too. I don't want to gender this, but still it's, you know, historically it has been through generation to generation an important book to read at a certain point in your life. And I think it's one of those, if you missed it at that time, it just doesn't land the same because I found myself relating more to the mother. I have a daughter and this book made me think like, am I doing the things that I know my mom did really well of just like being matter of fact about bodies, not trying to shame anyone or my own daughter or myself about my body in front of her? And then how do I prepare her? Am I preparing her for what's to come next? And that's just kind of an interesting thing to have to tackle right now. I mean, my daughter's only four years old. I've got quite a few more years before that becomes relevant. But still, I'm trying consciously to First of all, I don't want her to ever talk about anyone else's bodies. Like even if you notice something different, you don't need to say it. You don't need to call it out. And that's something that's happening now with a four-year-old. It's like if you're used to seeing bodies in a certain way and you see one that's very different, a four-year-old wants to call it out. So if someone is differently abled or you know, maybe looks different than what she's used to, I don't want that to be jarring or an embarrassing moment for us when we're out in public. But also I had an incident with uh, actually my niece who kind of like fat shamed me recently. What? And like she pointed at my belly and said, did you eat a lot? And I was like, no, like normal amount. Why? And she was like, oh, because your belly's so big. <laughs> I was like, well. No, I think it reminds me of, a, I have a very similar story where I went over to a girlfriend's house to do some gardening and she has a like two, two and a half, somewhere between two and three year old daughter. And her daughter pointed out the fat above my elbow Mm -hmm. and was like, what is that? And I said, oh, I think it's just skin to bend my elbow to be able to bend my arm. Yeah. And I said, do you have that? And she looks at her arm and she goes, I do have that. Oh, so she didn't even notice. So I was trying to make it more of like a a neutral stance, I guess, and not something that was more negative than positive. It's just bodies. Um, but I definitely noticed more in the movie than in the book, the emphasis on bodies. Right. But even in the book, they were looking at Playboy, comparing boob sizes. It just really highlighted the harsh, unrealistic expectations that are put on women. It actually made me think back about my relationship with Barbie. Yeah. I'm not a huge Barbie fan. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to see the movie, but I'm not a big Barbie fan because of the realistic expectations that she contributed to in our generation and those prior because Barbie's from like 1950. So even then, 
it was, you know, um, she's always been perfect. I think they've definitely done a better job at this point, kind of rebranding, coming from a mm-hmm. side of body acceptance and having diversity within, yeah, within their products. And I definitely think they've come a, a much yeah. farther way. I haven't seen the movie yet, but that's definitely something I've had to work through <laughs> recently yeah. with Barbie coming back. Yeah, like her proportions in real life would be ridiculous looking. I have conflicting feelings about Barbie as well. I've had to kind of tackle with that now that I have a daughter who is playing with Barbies. I think Barbies, and it's so popular right now, but I think I'm I'm having a hard time in adulthood kind of embracing my femininity. And I think having a daughter has made me do that in a way that I likely wouldn't have if I didn't have a daughter. But like, what do I like? And why do I like those things? And really kind of breaking down like, I hate the color pink. But why do I hate the color pink? I think it's because it's like, it's just being a contrarian because it's been forced upon girls to love pink. And so I hate pink. I'm really trying to yeah, like I said, not um, not see feminine, femininity as a negative thing, even though I'm not super feminine. I just don't want to not be feminine because it's a rejection of femininity. And I want to be able to embrace that, those parts of me, if that makes sense. I can completely relate, though, because even with my tattoo journey, I've covered my entire left arm. I'm trying to do a sleeve in the process, almost yeah. done. Um, But everything that I choose kind of is interpreted as more masculine. And even my sister-in-law has been talking about like wanting me to add more flowers and things like that. I mean, I did end up eventually getting an entire garden tattoo down my right side. And that was me kind of embracing my femininity. But yeah. Oh, really? Oh, even in your tattoos. I think it's also interesting that you note that because I... I feel like we both were people that really weren't massively feminine and pink was really shoved down our throat a lot. I know that people would ask me my favorite color and my thought was, oh, it's blue. But even is blue my favorite color? It's never been my favorite color. But why did I say blue? Yeah, it's like we're in a, we're yeah, we grew up in a weird like a wave of feminism where it was rejecting your own femininity instead of embracing that part of yourself and being okay with it. And I think that's kind of where I'm trying to get to as a woman and why I think having a daughter has been so powerful for me. I wanted a son. I thought it would be easier to have a son. I can't imagine now because I love my daughter more than anything, but I I truly think it was like a lesson that I had to learn of how to be a woman and embrace the parts in me that society has told me is wrong or weak or not okay. And I think for me, that's what Barbie has turned into is like embracing what previously would have been damaging or negative for me. I'm able to just kind of like see at face value and take what I want to from it. I think Barbie has a 
corporation has also come a long way. Like there are Barbies that are missing limbs. There are Barbies of all different skin tones. There are Barbies of all different shapes. I made a point when my daughter started playing with Barbies to have Barbies that represent the whole spectrum of bodies. And so I think... Absolutely. I remember getting Lily one of her first baby dolls when she was like one or two. That was a person of color. And I was asking what I should get her. And you were like, get her a baby doll. And you're like, just don't get her anything that's like us. Like nothing blonde, (laughs) nothing white, nothing blue-eyed. And that's what my daughter is. But she needs to see bodies that aren't exactly the same as hers. So, yeah, I'm trying to be more conscious around Barbie and what it can mean to the next generation. I think, yeah, ours really kind of internalized some of those unachievable body standards. And I think they've come a long way to to kind of course correct on that. But similarly, yeah, I I still had very (laughs) conflicting feelings seeing the movie. I think it kind of overcomes that, but it is, it's there. But anyways, getting back to the book, one relationship that I did think was really positive for Margaret, she has one grandmother that she's not close with, she barely knows. And then she has another grandmother that she is just so close with. I had noted her relationship with her grandmother is amazing. It is. And her grandma's, she's pushy, she's kind of annoying, she inserts herself in situations, but she's there, and she loves her, and she's present, and she makes sure that she knows that she's loved, which is like, oh my gosh, such an amazing relationship to have, especially at that age, where everything kind of feels insecure, you know? And then she's in this situation, like we talked about, where she's moving, she's going to a new school, people are talking about all these body changes that are happening. So having that stability in her life, even though the relationship changes slightly, her grandmother changes, her priorities change, her physical location changes throughout the book, but still she's a stable person in her life. But then there was also a character within the book that was not so great for Margaret. Nancy. And that was Nancy. I was just about I was just about to transition to that because I feel like Friends is a huge theme in this book. And oh my gosh, I hated Nancy so bad. Even early on, I was like, why does she annoy me so bad? And then as the book continued, I was like, oh, because she's awful. She is such a mean girl. I feel like Margaret's going to have to end that relationship like she doesn't in this book but she's gonna have to end that relationship because she's gonna grow up to be the meanest mean girl ever and you don't want to be a part of that i think everybody knew a mean girl at some point in their upbringing yeah i feel like we all can relate to that i feel like for me personally i didn't have my mean girl stage until much later mine was more of like high school um yeah beginning of high school maybe but definitely not at 11 um, but I think we all knew somebody yeah. that was a Nancy in our lives. The girls were mean, in my experience, in middle school. I think by high school, everyone kind of like got into their own thing and like had their cliques or groups or whatever. And then elementary school, everyone was so sweet. But I mean, in high school, we definitely had our crew, but they were not loyal to each oh. other. And they would not be people that I would consider to be good friends. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> But I really started to feel bad for Nancy Um, towards the end, especially because it was like everything started falling apart. Margaret realized that everything Nancy had said was a lie and was gossip about other people. Um, 
and it was just like her cover with, you know, Nancy's cover was completely blown. And I think you kind of do see that throughout your upbringing where people are, um, they kind of lose everybody around them. I just felt bad for Nancy. I felt like she really lost in the end. Um, but the book was well-written to make us hate her. I mean, that was her character. And I feel like that was very well portrayed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was all out of insecurity. Like she just needed to be the coolest and have the biggest house and get her period first and have all the boys like her. And it's, it was all out of insecurity. So yeah, she kind of created her own bed and then had to lie in it. I think with Margaret, she was really looking for, for guidance. She was looking for something to fall back on. Her parents really provided her no foundation when it came to religion at all. Instead Mm -hmm. of being like, oh, well, your dad is Jewish and your mom was raised, blah, blah, blah. You know, it, but we're going to let, we don't practice either of those. We're going to let you choose. You know, it would have allowed Margaret the opportunity to kind of pick or choose which side she wanted to go on because she really could have gone with either. She could have gone to the YMCA. She could have gone to the JCC. I don't think either. Um, I don't know. Yeah. And her mom is dealing with her parents who aren't around anymore because of who she married. And obviously religion's another big theme in this book, but those themes are so much more important than who has their damn period first, you know? Like, it just seems so... But that's how insular your life is at that age. It's like literally everything is about your friends and comparing yourself to them. And are you doing... Am I okay? (laughs) So... On the note of religion, I, I really, it made me think I, I'm, I'm really kind of having to approach myself about how I'm raising my own child because I've kind of taken the same approach that her parents did. And I don't think it suited her well, which is like, oh, she'll make the decision when she's older. I try to expose Lily to different beliefs but don't really tell her, like, this is exactly what I believe. Um, Like, she asked what happens when you die recently, and I just said, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Well, we don't, I don't know. know. I don't know what to tell you. I'll, I'll tell you some people believe this and some people believe this, and I'm telling you that I just don't know, and that's just part of life. Um, I think it's harder to wrap your head around as a child But it's easier than dismantling a religious belief that you decide doesn't suit you later in life. So I'm I'm really not sure which is best. I know in the book, her motivation was finding out if she wanted to join the Y or JCC, which is such a superficial reason to try to find religion. But she is trying to find it and trying to find herself in it. And I don't want my daughter to feel that way at this age or really at any age. So I don't know if there's a right way to do it, but I I feel like exposure, because her parents were almost like, we'll let you choose later, so let's not expose you to anything until later in life. And I'm trying to be a bit more balanced of like, I want her to experience lots of things and then kind of see what resonates with her. And it really kind of broke my heart when Margaret said she only feels God's presence when she privately prays, doesn't feel him in a church service, doesn't feel him in synagogue so or temple. Um, but 
I I kind of feel that way about my own spirituality and religion. I have yet to find a, a true like religious home, but I do feel God's presence when I pray. And that's such a personal thing that sometimes religion isn't even going to suit that need for you. Like religion is about community where spirituality and a relationship with a higher power is really kind of a one-on-one relationship. And so I think her focus was so much on finding a religion and a community and what gym is she going to join versus focusing on what she was already doing, which is creating a relationship with a higher power. That's really kind of what it's all about anyways. I definitely have noted that her relationship was elementary with her higher power, that Margaret's relationship was elementary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You could see her a lot asking for things, but not only that, but she also like plays the victim at certain points. Mm -hmm. And it's like, why me? And that type of thing. Um, That's definitely not the relationship that I have with my higher power. Um, That's definitely not how... I would be handling that relationship, but it is interesting. It's something I've always thought about in terms of people's relationship with religion and why they need that, what that feeds for them, what that does for them. So it is very interesting to see. I think you, you pegged the nail on the head when you said it's about community. And I think that's really what Margaret is looking for. She moved to a new place. She's seeking that community Mm -hmm. and she's really just trying to figure out what she thinks, what she believes. Um, I think it's also interesting that she talks about how she only feels God when she's alone, like you were mentioning, but she was also saying, sometimes I feel like it's only me. Um, and I think that's very interesting. It, it's, it really all depends on what you see and how you interact with life. You could see God everywhere. You can, you know, not believe in God at all and still see beauty in things. So it's, it is interesting. Yeah, it it changes and it evolves. Yeah. But is the most important thing in your relationship with your higher power, figuring out whether you need to go to the YMCA or some other community group? No. And just to emphasize, you don't need to be Christian to go to the YMCA. Yeah. Um, Yes. I had family members work out and exercise at the JCC and they were Christian. So yeah, that shouldn't be your only motivation here. But I also understand that Margaret's 11 and I'm not going to fault her for her relationship with her higher power at 11 years old and for behaving in an age appropriate yeah. manner. Yeah. But I, th- I think she was picking up on signals from her parents, which is that they wanted nothing to do with religion until she was older. So she's like, well, then I just have to figure this out on my own, which is a difficult thing to do, especially when you're dealing with all of these other kind of themes of belonging at the same exact time. Um, there are definitely some markers about the, the time and period that this happened. So I know, um, they had to change recently in the book, um, sanitary belts were used in the book. Um, so when the girls got their periods, they were talking about how to wear sanitary belts, which was like the first version of a pad and like how to put the belt on. They've changed it. So the original publication mentioned sanitary belts, and they haven't done much to the publication other than a few kind of contemporary updates, one of these being they're now using pads instead of the sanitary belts. Yeah. So it was 
literally a belt that you wore around you. And then it kind of had like a little strap that went underneath you. And yes, and then you attach the pad to the belt. So everything was washed. Nothing was thrown away, I don't think. But they had special clips and safety pins where you attach the pad into the belt and then the belt goes around your waist, which sounds awful and uncomfortable. And in the 70s, like, were we that far behind in the 70s? But, you you know, we were um, talking about kind of on this day in history, what are we dealing with within the culture? Um, the, in 1972, so the book was published in 1970, but not until 1972 did the U.S. Supreme Court legalize birth control for unmarried people. So only married couples could use birth control in the 60s up to 1972. Only married couples could get birth control. Not until 72 could unmarried people get birth control. It's super interesting because I always think back on women's health and and just the progression that we've had. And it always feels like, at least from my opinion, I always felt like we had not progressed, like in terms of underwire bras and chemicals and tampons and pads being diapers and all of that. But it just seems like that wasn't that long ago. But, you know, we're 90s kids. So, of course, everything you count back from the year 2000. So it sounds like it's only 30 years ago, but it was, let me do the math, 50 something. Oh, we're going to do know? math so that, on here I mean, again. <laughs> Yeah, let's not let's let's not do math again. We're not great at that. We've discovered, but it was a long time ago. So it seems like it wasn't that long ago. And like, how were we that far behind? But birth control itself, the contraceptive pill, was not approved until the year 1960. So of course, we're not talking about sex and sex education in school. Of course, girls are obsessed with this because anything that you're not supposed to be talking about or people don't want you talking about, you're going to be talking about. So it just wasn't in the rhetoric. It wasn't something discussed openly and publicly. And we could get into the whole history of how the U.S. came from really fundamental religious groups and was founded by the Puritans. And we really kind of carry those same ideals into the current day. So everything's pretty uh, behind where (laughs) you would assume that it is. But um, similarly, in this range of like, around 1970, when the book was published, there was a lot of women's rights and women's equality movements as well. So on the 50th anniversary of suffrage, On August 26th in 1970, there was a women's strike for equality, which brought together all kinds of various diverse groups of people to protest. It was a strike for equality, which was the largest women's rights demonstration since suffrage. So it was more inclusive than anything they had seen before. Like I said, it was really diverse groups, but trying to get some sort of equality in the nation in 1970. The first women's study department began in San Diego State University around this time as well, shortly followed by a women's study program at Cornell. Also, members of the National Organization for Women, or NOW, stood up in the U.S. Senate gallery to demand attention for the Equal Rights Amendment. 
At the same time, feminists are staging sit-ins. Um, one specifically is a sit-in at the ladies' home journal offices, which demanded changes in the feminine mystique propaganda of women's magazines. And the feminine mystique propaganda was this view of like, oh, the housewife who is glamorous and takes care of everything and is at home in the home, you know? So how can we change the the publications and the media and um, the the allure of this kind of unrealistic and unhealthy view of women, which is that you should be at home and glamorous and also taking care of everything. Well, I can so tell you, some we, we look pretty about. glamorous right now. <laughs> yeah, we both got top knots and t-shirts on. So if that doesn't tell you how far we've gone... It's just crazy to me because as somebody who is definitely offended by chemicals being in my tampons, I'm definitely offended by the sanitary belt. <laughs> like what? I, yeah, I've never even seen one. I did have to Google it though because that was fascinating. Um, there was a there was a, a scene in the book. I guess scene sounds more movieish. There was a section of the book um, devoted to Margaret buying her first bra. Do you have any memories of buying your first bra? Was that a thing? Did you have to ask for it? Did your mom just do it? Oh my God, yes. I remember my first bra. It was not, I was a super tomboy. I liked living in the mud. I would go out in the woods. I would come back every day with like ticks in my hair because it was up in New England. Um, <laughs> but I was not the girl who like approached my mom about wanting to do very many things girly. Um, she was ready because I have an older sister. So she was ready for me to buy my first bra. And it was kind of one of those things where now is the time and you have to do it. And we went to JC Penny and we bought my first training bra. And of course it was paying up. And it's like, you can see it more in the movie, but they definitely touch on it in the book. They, by the time anybody needs these bras, they don't really need them. Like, or like they're getting these bras way before they actually need them. Like Margaret is flat when she gets her first bra and it's almost like it's just conditioning for us to get used to wearing these horrible contraptions and these straps. Yeah. All I remember from my first bra, I think my mom just bought one for me. I imagine that I would have been so mortified to even walk into the store and be a part of it. So I'm pretty sure my mom just did it for me. But all I remember is it was so uncomfortable and just a million straps. I think it was like a racer back kind that had like straps that cross or something. I remember it being like, this doesn't make sense. Why do I have to wear this? This is so stupid. And I remember the first time that I wore it, my dad hugged me and I had on like a silk shirt because of course we're 90s kids. So it was like a silk, I remember it specifically lime green, like neon green silk button down because office wear was a thing. But my dad kind of like hugged me and felt it and was like, what is this? And I had to explain to my dad that I was wearing a bra. And I was like, there's nothing worse than I'm wearing this stupid thing. And now my dad has called me out on it and I have to talk about it. No, oh. <laughs> not with your dad. Everything embarrassed me at this age, though. Everything. I was that way, too. And I still kind of am. <laughs> I was also the same way though. I, they made me wear this bra or I wore it like the first day I got it because we had them. And then I didn't wear it again for like weeks. And then finally like had my cycle became a woman and actually needed a bra and started wearing them. But lucky for me, didn't develop far. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, a few other things I specifically wanted to call out was that the misinformation around periods was so, so rampant at this time. So they sent a letter home to the parents to say, hey, in Margaret's class, we're going to talk about periods. And they separate the girls and the boys and they sat in the gym and they learned about what a period was. Apparently, videos were made at this time specifically to educate young girls so that their parents didn't have to and the schools didn't have to. There were just these videos that were shown. And Kotex and Disney made a cartoon to teach girls about their periods. And I watched it. It is horrible. I remember hearing about this, but I don't think I saw it. Or if I did, it was a really long time ago. Yes. But I, I did know it was You've a probably thing. seen it because it's like a notorious one that says things like avoid very hot water or very cold water when bathing. Be sure to bathe more often because women sweat more during their periods, which is absolutely not true. They're just shaming you for something that your body's doing that's perfectly normal and clean. And women are filthy because you have periods. You're on your period. So you sweat more. So you're gross and you need a shower. And then they said anything other than mild exercise um, is basically wrong. Like, just don't do anything while you're on your period. And then they say period pain probably isn't going to happen to you. And to most girls, it should be no severe discomfort, which I just had to share with you because (laughs) you know very well that that is not the case. That's a damn lie. Absolutely. As somebody with endometriosis who has been like passed out on the floor from my pain, I would not describe that as mild. These poor girls. Yeah, nothing more than than mild discomfort. We see that a lot in women's health, though, even still to this day in terms of like young women are told with a lot of the time, it's pretty common for young women to be told, oh, don't worry about that until you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what if yeah. I don't ever become pregnant? True. What if I can't be pregnant? What if I don't have children? It's like women are regularly brushed off. Yeah. Well, there was even a comment which is so infuriating. I considered not even saying it on the pod, but at the very end of this video made by, again, Kotex and Disney, they say, when a girl's on her period, you should really just stop feeling sorry for yourself and keep smiling because no one wants to be around that. And it's like, so not only are you going to be uncomfortable, possibly in pain, which we're going to lie to you about and say it's not painful, but then you need to just kind of brush yourself off and keep smiling because no one wants to be around someone who's unhappy. So it's just, it's body shaming. It's making women feel gross about something that's natural and then telling them that they can't even really truly experience it because you kind of have to just keep on smiling and push through. And we see that a lot, honestly. We we see that with a lot of education in terms of like even for drugs as a substance use counselor. I saw that a lot in my education. Just yeah. blatant lies about things. Yes. And I'm sorry, but that doesn't prepare anybody. Yeah. These poor girls. Well, I mean, that's still an advancement from that's still an advancement from not talking about it at all. You know? So it was like, okay, well, at least there are these educational videos. It's just they were filled with inaccuracies and not setting girls up for having the right expectations. These girls had no idea what to expect. 
Well, and Nancy, Nancy's reaction, even having that knowledge is she was just freaking out. So the mean girlfriend who finally got her period first lied about it and said that she got it and then was found out because she actually got it and was losing her mind and freaking out. I imagine that that was the experience of so many girls at this time, because if you if you really don't kind of know what to expect, how terrifying. It's kind of like the movie Carrie. You know, Carrie's mom never told her anything. She didn't know what a period was. And then she was like, I'm dying. She was bleeding everywhere. Like, it is scary. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question. There was one point in the book, I think they actually said it multiple times, where they called a boy a drip. Never quote unquote, heard that ever. What is that? Was that slang back then? Were we supposed to know what a drip is? Is it lame? Is it like being a drag? Like you're not fun to be around? But I'm sure it meant like something lame. It's kind of what the context made me to believe, but also I don't know any of the slang terms from nowadays either. I went and saw the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie and never felt so old. So the turtles are teens, but it was set in like nowadays, like not 80s teens where like I get the references, but it was like modern day teens. Literally the only term I understood was sus. I know sus. Like that was sus. Other than that, I was like, I don't know what they're saying. Like, this is another language. I feel so old. That reminds me of a meme I saw recently where it was like the generation before us has us walk into a room and they hear our slang and they're like, oh, yeah, I can follow along. Yeah, I'm down with that. And then the generation after us comes Mm -hmm. into the room and it's like gibberish. It's like bippity boppity boop. Like nobody (laughs) can understand what he's saying. Yeah. You definitely get to a point where it's like you can't keep up and you you just don't care anymore. Yeah, I've lost all interest in even I've lost all interest in even Try trying to keep up. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the difference is like one generation past you you're like I'm cool, I can still keep up with it, but then two you're like I've lost all interest to even care about this. Like you speak however you want to, I'm good, you know. Your, your language is kind of stuck in a particular decade or time period. And then you're just like, I don't want to learn anymore. It's also like us trying to record this podcast. Like, what are we doing? We're trying to use oh my technology God. from eight years ago and apply it to now. <laughs> How do we do this? Yeah, I know. Nothing's made me feel more old than even trying to record a podcast. So just stick with us as we figure out some recording and audio issues. But <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep on trying. That's the thing about us. Nothing if not persistent. But going back to the boys, we were talking about the boys. Um, One thing that this book brought back were the games that they played, like going to Norman's party and they played two games. They played Spin the Bottle and they played Seven Minutes in Heaven. At least back in our time, it was Seven Minutes in Heaven. I think in the book, they called it Two Minutes in Heaven and they were lasting like three seconds. Yeah, it was definitely seven when I grew up. I remember playing those games as a kid and just feeling so vulnerable and being so uncomfortable as a young woman, like in these circumstances. Yeah. I mean, even, even truth or dare was risky when you were a kid. Oh my God. Truth or dare was the most dangerous. (laughs) What am I going to agree to? I was always choosing truth. And then it was like, what do I have to confess? You can lie. Well, the the last thing that I have got to talk to you about is the fact that they did square dancing in school. Did you do square dancing in school? We did something. We did one or the other. I can't really remember, honestly. It was like we did line dancing, I want to say. Oh, 
You know what? I think I did square dancing. Not maybe we did both, but I think I did. I think I did square dancing. But why? Why in the nineties? Why in the nineties are we still participating in square dancing and line dancing in school? I guess it's just like the most appropriate, like keep a distance, but you're learning something coordinated. I don't know. I that was like so many memories came flooding back <laughs> and trying to figure out like who am I going to crisscross with when we're we're switching partners and all that. trying to te- like line it yes. up right time it out okay we're gonna switch this time and then we're gonna switch that time and then maybe I'll get them yeah I uh yeah I don't know why it also made me think for some reason that jogged a memory about you remember those presidential awards that were like can you stretch and can oh, you yeah, run a mile? Yes. And can you, like, I think one was actually the rope. As like Definitely. Old school as that sounds. It was like climbing the rope. And then you got like a presidential award for it. That was always terrifying to me. I'm not a gym person. I'm not athletic in any way, shape, or form. It would literally scare me. Like, I would be nervous for those presidential tests. I definitely remember that. But then this also triggered the memory for me. Not my first dance. I definitely remember my first dance, but my last dance. Um, And just the feeling of how awkward it was. It was my freshman year of high school. I think they called it the homecoming dance, but I went and nobody was dancing. Everyone's lined up on the outside. Like heavyweight style. The boys are on one side, the girls are on the other. It was just so awkward. And I remember thinking, I never want to do this again. So I got myself out of a lot of those kinds of situations by simply just thinking I'm way too cool for any of it. (laughs) So I never went to middle school dances. I barely went to high school dances. I think I went to my junior prom and senior prom, but it was because I was dating my now husband and it was like, okay, we can dress fancy and go out. It's like a thing that you do in high school. I don't think I went to any other day. I might've gone to one, but I just was simply too cool for any of it. So I got myself out of a, (laughs) (laughs) I got out of a lot of that. (laughs) I didn't have as, I didn't have as many experiences, but I also got out of a lot of really cringy ones by just thinking I was too cool. But also, it brought back memories of the first test that I ever failed, which was a PE test on football. And I still probably, if I had to take it today, would probably fail it again. I know that it was a super easy test. It had to have been because it was for second graders. But oh my God. It also brought up, though, how like some of my friends would have parents that would help them get out of events. Like Margaret made it well known that she didn't want to go to Norman's party but they ended up going. Like I had friends that their moms would have come up with an excuse for them so that they didn't have to go. They would have like listened to their kid. Yeah. (laughs) Me though? No, no, I was not that kid. I was not lucky. My parents made me go to everything. Go figure. I would. (laughs) And was in no control over anything. Yeah. My my mom was my ride or die. She would make up any excuse for me. She's like, yeah, sorry. Her tummy hurts. Can't go. Can't go. Sorry. So see your mom doing that. That's awesome. Well, I think that was our last bit. So I think that wraps us up for this week. Guys can check out more on our social media. You can follow us along on TikTok, Instagram, and threads at 90s Kid Book Club. So I guess we'll see you next Tuesday. And TTYL. Bye.
拜。